We want to thank our sponsor, The Star Movie. The Star is coming back to theaters for a limited time. It's about a small, brave donkey named Bo who yearns for a life beyond his daily grind at the village mill. One day he finds the courage to break free and teams up with Ruth, the lovable sheep, and Dave, the hilarious dove with lofty aspirations. Along with three wise-cracking camels and some eccentric stable animals, Bo and his new friends follow the star on the adventure of their dreams, filled with lots of laughter, and become part of the greatest story ever told. Experience the star again December 7th and 8th in select theaters. Backed by popular demand, you and your family can celebrate the true meaning behind the season. Be sure to check out all of the great resources for your family to use this holiday season. There are discussion guides along with tons of free downloadable activities. Don't wait to get your tickets today. Find a theater near you at thestarmovie-tickets.com. That's thestarmovie-tickets.com. This podcast is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. What is creation? Did God create the world in six days and rest on the seventh? Does anyone really care? These questions and many more, including teaching tips and great resources, are presented in the Creation Science Podcast. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and it's my pleasure and honor to be your host. Some of these shows are from my Best of Creation Expos and other presentations I've completed throughout the years of teaching on this topic. I'm the owner of Media Angels, Inc., a publishing company that produces books, audios, and videos to help you and your family in your Christian walk. Check out my books and other podcasts at MediaAngels.com. To get the show notes for this broadcast, go to CreationSciencePodcast.com. And now, let's learn together. Hey, everyone, and welcome. This is Felice Gerwitz with an episode of the Creation Science Podcast. And today, I have a special guest. Uh, We did uh, basically a part one on this, some of the findings on creationism, and I'll put that in the show notes. I'll put that link. And today, I would like to introduce Dr. Jay Weil. He has a PhD in nuclear chemistry, and he's also the author of several science series. Welcome, Jay. That's great to be here. Well, Jay, you did something you said you would never do, but there is a God, so I always love these stories. And you wrote an elementary series after being a college professor, and uh, you wrote the uh, Science in the Beginning. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, I don't have a lot of experience with with that age group. Uh, We adopted our daughter as a teen, so I missed that whole age group (laughs) personally. And I've never taught at the elementary level, so I never thought I would write an elementary book. But like you said, God has a sense of humor for sure. Um, So I was approached by uh, uh, My Father's World. Uh, who had a book about the seven days of creation and the science in the things that were created each day. And that was going out of print. And so they, they wondered if I could write something. And I thought, ah, oh, it'd be pretty easy to do. Uh, just, you know, uh, day one, you talk about light. To day two, you talk about air and water. Uh, so uh, I did that. It's a very hands-on book. Every time you do science, you've got something you're doing with your hands. Most of the time, it's mm-hmm. very simple stuff. 
Uh, but basically, by the end of the book, you've learned a little bit about everything in nature because you've learned a little bit about everything that has been created in the six creative days of Genesis. Uh, and when I got done with that, I thought, well, you know, I actually kind of enjoyed this, <laughs> so maybe I should continue. And I thought, well, since, since creation is the beginning of history, let's just keep going with history. Uh, so the series is called Science in History. And it starts with science in the beginning, and then it goes on to science in the ancient world. And I just discuss science as it was learned in history. Right. You did industrial age and scientific uh, revolution and so forth. So that's really cool. Yeah. So um, as I told you in a previous series, probably that my grandkids think it's really cool that I know you. So <laughs> <laughs> my kids weren't that impressed because they grew up at conferences and heard you speak many times. So they felt they knew you too, but, uh, but yeah, so we've, we've uh, homeschooled with you, Jay, and it's been great. And, um, and so it's wonderful that a whole nother generation of kids will, you know, start younger and then go older. So that's, that's wonderful. Well, today we are going to talk about junk DNA and you can find the show notes for today's episode, which I promise will be jam packed. Um, and it is called Junk DNA. You can find it at Creation Science Podcast. So, Jay, what is it about junk DNA um, that has evolutionists stumped? Okay. So, for years, uh, basically since the early 70s, junk DNA has been a staple of evolutionary thinking. So, uh, back in the 70s, we didn't know a lot about DNA. The only stuff we really knew about DNA was parts of DNA contain these recipes uh, for the cells, and it tells the cells how to make a particular kind of chemical called a protein. And that those recipes make up about 2% of DNA. Uh, and as far as we knew back then, that's all DNA did, did was uh, tell the cells how to make proteins. So if only 2% of DNA is recipes, then the other 98% must be just useless junk. Uh, and evolutionists had a ready explanation for why there's junk DNA, because after all, evolution is driven by mutations. Mutations are random. They tend to destroy information much more than uh, produce new information. So if I've got a whole bunch of mutations, they're mostly going to be degrading uh, DNA. They're not going to be improving it. So uh, there must be a lot of DNA that got degraded. Uh, from these mutations, but of course the organism has to carry it along anyway. So the higher evolved an organism is, the more junk DNA it should have. And so it's not surprising, according to them, that 98% of the human genome is junk because we're a very highly evolved species. Evolution had to make a lot of mistakes before it made us. And so a lot of those mistakes are reflected in the junk DNA. Uh, and that's a real popular uh, view. Uh, eventually, junk DNA became an engine for evolution. Uh, because initially, evolutionists thought, well, you know, if you have a, a, a protein, if you have a, a gene and a mutation occurs, maybe that mutation can make it a little better. And if a series of uh, mutations over a long period of time can take one gene and turn it into a completely new gene. Uh, over time, evolutionists found, well, the biochemical data doesn't support that. We don't see lots of little steps in genes. And it's extremely hard to understand how I can take a gene uh, that the organism needs and mutate it uh, uh, to, into something else and lose what it originally uh, coded for. 
So the thought was, well, if I've got all this junk DNA laying around, it's just free to mutate. It's not going to affect anything. And magical new uh, genes can come out of that junk DNA. And by the early 90s, it was thought that the vast majority of evolution comes from this junk DNA. So, for example, there's this program called Avida, which is sort of the gold standard in uh, uh, computer simulations of evolution. In order for Avida to get evolution to happen at all, 85% of the genome of these organisms has to be junk because that's where all the good stuff is coming from. The problem Which occurred. Makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, right. But you know, uh, if 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 the junk isn't being used, then it's free to mutate, and eventually you'll get something wonderful uh, out of it, right? Okay. And so all these great new genes are coming from this part of the genome that's not used. Uh, and all this worked really well in the evolutionary view until 2012. And actually, there were hints of this before then because uh, uh, it was a big study. Uh, but in 2012, the first uh, big uh, results from a, a, a study called ENCODE uh, was produced. Now, ENCODE was a huge study. It looked at more than 1,600 data sets. It had hundreds of scientists involved in it. Um, and basically, they said, look, we have identified the cell using 80% of the human genome. So at minimum, 80% of the human genome is functional. Uh, and in fact, the lead data analysis coordinator uh, said that actually it's going to be much more than that because they only looked at certain types of human cells. There are certain human cells they haven't looked at yet. Those probably use different parts of the DNA. So in the end, he says he expects that 80% number to go up significantly. Now, this is a real problem. Like I said, Avita doesn't work right. unless 85% of the genome is junk. We now know that at most, 20% of the human genome is junk, which means the lower evolved species have even less than 20% junk DNA. Uh, so in the end, it's extremely hard to understand how evolution can function without a large pool of junk DNA. Uh, and there's a, a, a professor named Dan Grauer. He's a professor of, uh, of uh, evolutionary biology. And he actually has made the statement that if ENCODE is right, then evolution is wrong. So what he's saying is if wow. the results of this study is true, are true, then evolution can't happen. And he's saying not only do we need junk DNA to have a, 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 a source for all these new wonderful genes, he's saying it's even worse than that because if you have the human genome and 80% of it is functional, that means natural selection has to keep 80% of the DNA uh, from, uh, from mutating significantly in order for it to work. And he said, in order for that to happen, on average, every uh, couple would have to have 15 children. And most of them would die wow. because the, the mutations in their DNA would kill them. But out of 15 children, 2.3 of them would live, which would allow this human population to continue. Uh, and so he's saying, yeah. and code can't be right. We can't have that much functional DNA because there's no way natural selection can keep, keep it clean for millions of years. But I, and I agree with that. I agree. There's no way natural selection is going to keep the human genome clean for millions of years, but humans haven't been around for millions of years. <laughs> so it's really right. easy to understand the encode uh, results in, from a creationist standpoint, because we know uh, from a, a, a biblical standpoint that people lived longer in the past, specifically because their DNA was less mutated. 
Uh, and so natural selection has not been able to keep the DNA clean. Uh, it has been degrading, and that's why we have shorter uh, lifespans than the people during Noah's time and things like that. Um, so in the end, this whole idea of the 80% or more of the gene being functional is perfectly fits in the young earth creationist perspective. And in fact, young earth creationists were predicting this all the way back when, when evolutionists were first talking about uh, junk DNA. Uh, young earth creationists were saying, no, there may be a little bit of junk DNA because of, a, of the degradation that, that's occurred since the fall, but the vast majority of DNA has to be functional. And now we know that that, that young earth creationist prediction is correct, uh, and, the, the, and the biochemical data strongly support that. Now, a lot of times evolutionists just make honest mistakes, and, and all scientists make honest mistakes, so I never fault evolutionists for that. But when we, when we look at the large number of faked fossils, the large number of faked experiments, all trying to support the evolutionary view, um, that to me is a real problem. Yeah, and that would be another podcast we could do because um, oh, yeah, there's you just, know they just they're all over. The, and the problem is a lot of these fakes continue. Like I give a talk all right. the time about Ernst Haeckel's faked embryonic drawings, right? And I get emails from students saying, you know, I just took this standardized test, and Ernst Haeckel's drawings are there on the test, and we have right. questions about it, even though we know they're fake. Yeah, that happened uh, to my daughter. Um, one of her friends had it in her biology book and my daughter pointed it out. And so they went to the professor and talked to the professor and she goes, Oh yeah, I'm not going to teach that. We know that's false. Well then why did you pick a biology book that had that in there? Okay, moving on, you know? So it's just, it's just, uh, you know, and, and kids are not going to let it go. You know, right. that's one of the things I think is great. And you know, from being a professor, they're going to challenge you. Uh, this is one place where uh, uh, evolution and some creationists too, both sides, can really distort science because evolutionists de uh, desperately want their view to be true. And so they're willing to lie in textbooks so that students are more likely to come to their view. So, you know, I guarantee you the authors of that textbook know Ernst Haeckel's drawings are fake. If not, they don't deserve to write a biology textbook. They know they're fake. They're in there specifically because they're so uh, uh, convincing. And so the, mm -hmm. the authors are willing to lie to convince. Now, unfortunately, that does happen on the creationist side too. Some creationists are so desperate for their view to be true that they feel like they have to lie in their books or their textbooks and so forth. I honestly think that, you know, scientists have shown us through the vast majority of science history that if you simply look at the data uh, objectively, you're going to end up being a creationist because objectively the data fall much better in that camp. So rather than trying to convince people uh, of, uh, of the creationist view or the evolutionist view, I think you teach the science and the science just shows the creationist view to be right. Right, and, and the thing is we don't have all the answers and no. you know, God is God. It, it's, it's interesting to keep learning and I'm delighted you know, that you're on here explaining this because it's fascinating to me. Um, so what else did you want to share anything else about the junk DNA or do you want to move on to the epigenetics? Yeah, I think, uh, I think we can move on now. The big thing, I think Dan okay. Grower's point is very true. And I think what we're going to learn is ENCODE is right and therefore evolution is wrong. When did, just quickly, when did they start the experimentation of that or when did they come out with their findings? First time I saw the preliminary results was early 2000. 
uh, I can't remember okay. exactly when it was, but it was early 2000, because this was a long, long study. Uh, oh, so right. 2003, I think, uh, is when they started this project. They didn't publish until 2012. So this was a series of experiments that, uh, and analyses that took nine years. <laughs> so, and that's wow. very, very different from a lot of these, you know, a lot of these paleontological studies, a lot of these evolutionary biology studies, you know, it's somebody working for a few months, they come up with a novel result, they publish it. Now, this was a nine-year study. They wanted to know they were getting it right. Right. And if this guy ever does come out and say, you know, I don't think that the earth is that old, uh, they'll probably not be happy with them. So, <laughs> you know, it's not they'll job to security to... Right? <laughs> From the scientific world. Yep. Oh, gosh. Okay. So epigenetics, very um, funky term. What does it mean? And why is it important uh, to those of us that are interested in, in learning more about the latest findings? Well, the term, the, the prefix epi means above. So your epidermis is the top layer of your skin. Uh, epigenetics is something that happens above genetics. So uh, the way we typically talk about genetics, genetics are determined by the sequence of, inf uh, of nucleotide bases in the DNA. So the DNA contains these uh, chemicals called nucleotide bases, and they act like uh, dots and dashes in the Morse code. And so if you have this, uh, this, uh, the nucleotide bases in one sequence, it means one thing. If you have them in a different sequence, it means a different thing. And for a long time, uh, it was thought that it was the sequence of these bases that determines everything uh, uh, structurally about a, an organism. So if I look at your eye color and I find enough genes that relate to eye color, I can tell, I can look at the sequence of those genes and I can tell you exactly what your eye color is going to be. Um, and so all of your physical characteristics, uh, I can trace back to a sequence uh, on your DNA. And we now know that's not true because we've gotten really good at using animals uh, that, are, uh, that are genetically identical. Uh, they're, 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 they're cloned animals, so we know they're genetically identical. And yet, uh, when we put them in different situations, they end up having different physical characteristics. Uh, and this has been real known for a well known for a long time. There's a, a, a cat uh, that was cloned from another cat, and the cloned cat is called Copycat, which is kind of cute. Um, and uh, uh, Copycat never ever looked like the original cat. Uh, uh, that it was cloned from. It had a lot of features the same, but like its markings were different uh, and uh, mm -hmm. its personality was different because these things go beyond or are on top of uh, uh, genetics. And we've learned that it's surprising how how much goes on top of genetics. So there was a great study done where they took mice that were genetically identical uh, and they raised some of them, uh, uh, or they, they took mice that were genetically identical, they raised some of them to uh, learn to be scared of a particular color. So they trained them every time they saw that color, they got shocked. So they trained them to be afraid of that color. Other of the same genetically identical mice didn't get trained that way. Then they looked at the offspring of those mice. The offspring of those mice were immediately removed from the parents at birth. So the parents never raised the uh, uh, baby mice. Another surrogate parents, uh, surrogate mice raised the baby mice. So the baby mice never had any contact with the parents. Yet, the uh, baby mice 
from the mice that were trained to be afraid of that color were afraid of that color. And the baby mice from That's the cool. mice that weren't, weren't. And the baby mice are genetically identical across the board. <laughs> so they have wow. all the same genes, but because one set of parents was trained to be afraid, that somehow got transmitted. And it wasn't by training because the parents never had any contact with the babies. Uh, so in the end, somehow biologically, uh, these babies learn to be afraid of, uh, of, uh, of the color. Now, we don't know the, the specifics of how that happened. We only know that it did. <laughs> and so that's what epigenetics is. It's uh, uh, stuff that's going above just the sequence of, uh, of the DNA. Now, that's a pretty high-level mechanism. That's a, I mean, if you think about it, to, ge, genetics is, is, is complicated enough. I mean, the students regularly fail from biology because they don't understand genetics. It took us a mm -hmm. long time to learn genetics. So genetics is complicated enough. Now we add something on top of genetics. That makes everything even more complicated. So, of course, from the evolutionary perspective, it was thought that only higher evolved organisms would have epigenetic processes that, you know, genetics evolved first and then epigenetics evolved later. It's a higher level of, 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 um, of uh, control over, uh, over an organism's traits, so it should have come later. Well, it turns out that the, uh, we've just uh, looked at what are considered the most primitive kinds of bacteria that live on the planet. These are called thermophilic bacteria. They're bacteria that live in hot springs and things like that. These are supposed to be incredibly primitive. They're actually called archaea bacteria, and archaea means outdated or old because these are the oldest kind of bacteria that ever lived. They've got epigenetics too. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, wow. been shown that the two of these bacteria genetically identical uh they 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 are completely different when it comes to the kinds of environments they can live in and so it has to be epigenetic and so epigenetics now which is supposed to be an even higher level thing than genetics now appears in the most primitive organisms uh and so once again this whole idea of evolution is we start with really simple organisms and then over millions of years we get more and more complex organisms. That's not what we see in nature. What we see in nature is even the simplest organisms are ridiculously complex. Uh, right. I mean, there's, there's a, a bacterium called Mycoplasma genitalium, uh, and it's considered by most biologists to be the simplest living thing on the planet. It has the smallest set of DNA, fewest number of genes of any free-living organism on the planet. Uh, it turns out we've studied that, that, that bacterium so much that we've been able to create a computer code that simulates it. That computer code requires like 97 or something like that computers all running simultaneously to keep up with how the actual cell does it in uh, nature. So we can simulate it on a computer, but it takes a ridiculous amount of computing power just to keep up with the living cell. And this is the simplest life form on the planet. And this simplest life form on the planet probably has epigenetics, just like these primitive thermophiles do. So uh, this, wow. whole, this whole idea of you know, life getting more complicated over time doesn't play out when you actually look at life uh, from a scientific perspective. Right. I read a book uh, some years ago called Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe. And um, he was talking about 
that, you know, from the perspective of, you know, a simple cell. And there's some really cool uh, YouTube videos. Um, and I believe he was more of a, you know, I, I know that he's he's a Christian, but, um, you know, he said, I believe there's a creator God. But he did this study with um, people across denominations, people who were not believers, and basically came up with the same thing with that, you know, irreducible complexity. He coined a word and I'm trying to recall from about, you know, 10, 10 or 15 years ago when I read the book. But, um, you know, he he talked about that of how complex a cell is that without one part of it, you can't have it. So the fact that it evolved, um, you know, couldn't have happened. Right. Yeah. And uh, like he, he highlighted in that book, the bacterial flagellum. Uh, which is the way the bacterium moves, and it actually behaves like an outboard motor. Uh, and he showed that right. every part of that flagellum was necessary for the flagellum to work. And so there's no way it could evolve piecewise. It would have to come all at once. Uh, and he showed that with the blood clotting cascade that's in uh, uh, most organisms as well. I did find out it's 128 computers. So that simplest life form took 128 wow. computers to, uh, <laughs> to simulate. <laughs> So and of course, this is a as... this is a microscopic <laughs> organism. I can't see that organism with the naked eye, but it takes 128 computers to run it. <laughs> so that basically tells us there has to be, you know, a creator God. I mean, there has, to, and that's what they say. You know, like especially for non-believers, they'll just say something like, "Well, you know, there is a higher force. We just don't know his name." You know, and so. Uh, you know, because to admit it, I mean, there's so many um, quotes from scientists that have said, you know, well, we have to believe what we believe because the other, uh, you know, is, is just untenable. You know, we just can't go that way. And so um, it's amazing that they go to these extents, uh, Jay, to, you know, push their their theory. And then when it doesn't happen, you know, what do they say? Uh-oh, you know, have they have they made any conclusion that, you know, this is just not an evolutionary, uh, you know, plausible with evolution? Right. I'm, uh, the best example of that is Professor Richard Lee Walton. He's a geneticist and an evolutionist. And it says, um, uh, uh, it is not that the methods of institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of contents that produce material explanations. The, that materialism is absolute. We cannot allow a defined foot in the door. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and he's so saying it doesn't matter what the science says. We're just not going to let it happen. <laughs> and I'm a scientist, by the yeah, way. <laughs> yeah, and I'm a scientist, by the way, but I'm not going to let the divine foot in the door. Yeah. And that's where, you know, people may hear that term materialism. Um, it doesn't mean one who goes shopping and likes to buy a lot of things. It actually has to do with, with a lot of the uh, things that we're talking about today. Right. Yeah. Materialism is the idea that there's nothing supernatural. Everything can be reduced to atoms and molecules and energy, and there's nothing else than that. So even this concept that we call love isn't really real. Uh, love is just a manifestation of the way electrical stimuli run through our nervous system. Wow. All right. That's something to wrap, wrap your head around. <laughs> so what do they do with the whole, you know, going back to the mice, I found that fascinating because I was, um, 
a psych major to begin with, you know, mm-hmm. so, and that was really what derailed me was, was having to do stuff on lab mice. That was just it for me. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. Yep. But, um, and so, you know, but that whole thing is fascinating because what do you do with the nature versus nurture? You know, I mean, that's something that psychology really pushes, you know, which is it? Is it, you know, something that we inherited, which the study shows, or is it something that you uh, develop because of your environment? And there are certain things we can point to that are specifically environment. So, for example, identical twins have unique fingerprints. Uh, fingerprints are a better identifier of people because DNA matches between identical twins, but fingerprints do not. And we know why, because the, uh, the, the uh, pattern of fingerprints is determined by specific chemical gradients in the womb during development. And since you can't be in exactly the same place in the womb, if there are two people there, then they're going to have different fingerprints. Uh, so there are some mm-hmm. things uh, that we, we know are, uh, um, uh, are not inherited. They come as a result of the environment. But what epigenetics is saying is that there are some things we thought had to come from the environment that seem to be inherited. So fear, you know, fear in response to a uh, uh, particular color, that's not something anyone would have thought could be inherited. But at least in mice in this uh, one scenario, it is. So yeah, uh, I think what epigenetics is doing is it's reducing the nurture side of the, of the nature versus nurture debate. It's not eliminating it, it can't, because we know there are certain things, but I think right. it's reducing the number of things. Yeah, it, that's really fascinating. I'm going to have to look into that some more because uh, it's, you know, something I, I really had not heard of previous to this, this interview, uh, oh, yeah. Jay. So thank you for that. So to wrap up, you know, what are, what, do you, what are your conclusions to some of the things we've talked about today? So I think it's extremely hard to be a knowledgeable geneticist and be a, 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 an evolutionist. I think, the, you know, it used to be thought that once we figured out genetics, we'd finally figure out all these evolutionary trees. We'd know what evolved from what and so forth. But what we found is uh, if I try and construct evolutionary trees based on genes, if I use one set of genes, I get one evolutionary tree. If I use a different set of genes, I get a completely different evolutionary tree. We've learned that, uh, uh, that there's no way natural selection can can keep the genomes clean because the genomes have a lot more stuff uh, that, that natural selection has to clean. Uh, and uh, this whole epigenetic stuff uh, showing that, you know, if, if, if all of these sort of things that we've always thought were based on the environment, if there's this whole other way of inheriting, that adds now a completely new level to what evolution has to keep track of. Uh, And according Mm -hmm. to this study on uh, thermophilic bacteria, this has been around since the most primitive organisms. Uh, And so here's now another thing that has to pop out out of nowhere. Not only does DNA have to pop out of nowhere, but now epigenetic mechanisms have to pop out of nowhere. And so the more we've learned about genetics, uh, the less and less tenable evolution has become. And I do think that's why evolution, at least nowadays, uh, there are lots of papers in the scientific literature questioning evolution. Uh, in the early 2000s, you could say there's not a single paper in the peer-reviewed literature that questions the validity of evolution. Now there are lots of, uh, uh, of uh, papers in the scientific literature, the peer-reviewed secular scientific literature that's questioning evolution because in the end, genetics is pointing so strongly against it. Wow. 
that's amazing. You know, it only took scientists, uh, you know, what year are we in? 2019? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what, 160 years, 160 years to get to yeah. that point. <laughs> right. Yeah. So amazing, amazing. Well, guys, you can find more about Dr. Weil at Dr. Weil, and it's D-R-W-I-L-E dot com. And he has a really cool blog. Um, as I've told you, Jay, you're one of the few blogs I read, um, <laughs> but has lots of great information uh, that you can find on, you know, whatever he decides he's going to talk about that yes, day. So, whatever I find you know, you, <laughs> Yeah, which is really cool. But you're, you're very thorough, which is what I like. You know, you'll have links to of explanations that are good, I think. Well, so, well, this this has been wonderful. We are going to uh, be recording another podcast on uh, global warming uh, or climate change, whichever is the new flavor of the month or what it's called. And we're going to be doing that soon. So stay tuned. Uh, Jay, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's always fun talking with you, Felice. All right. Well, guys, you can find the information for today's episode on uh, creationsciencepodcast.com. Look for Junk DNA. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Creation Science Podcast. You can find the show notes at creationsciencepodcast.com. And as always, reach out to me, Felice Gerwitz, at felice at mediaangels.com. Take care, God bless, and I hope you enjoy teaching your children and learning about the beautiful world that God created. Please share this broadcast with a friend and thanks so much.